Today we come to the book of Judges. Let's first do a quick review of the book of Joshua. And I hope you have gone through Joshua. You say it's only a few days. Actually, if you were to use the audio Bible, you would probably finish listening to the book of Joshua in just over an hour if you skip the chapters about the dividing of the land, you know, from chapter Joshua chapter 13 to 22. It's all about the dividing of the land. And, you know, there's too much detail. Unless you were an Israelite, you want to have to occupy that land. You want to know your boundaries. But for you and me, unless you want to do some in-depth study for this survey, you could skip chapters, listening to chapters 13 to 22. In one hour, you would have covered Joshua quite easily. Now, Joshua ended on a very promising note. Not perfect, but promising. Joshua had done a good job, and he had believed the promise of God. He had been of good courage, had gone in and conquered the cities as God told him he would do. Right? So let me just read kind of a summary of Joshua before we move into the book of Judges. Joshua 21, verse 43 to 45, reads something like this. And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he sware to give unto their fathers. And they possessed it and dwelt therein. And the Lord gave them rest round about, according to all that he sware unto their fathers. And there stood not a man of all the enemies before them. The Lord delivered all the enemies into their hand. There failed not art of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel, all came to pass. So whatever God had promised the children of Israel, that the land is yours, but you have to possess it. And if you by faith go in and take the cities, you will get them. That's a promise. Okay. So and Joshua took it by, by took the word of God. And did exactly that, and he just conquered one city after another. You could list 31 cities, 45 cities that he captured. You must remember, the children of Israel were not trained soldiers. They were slaves. They didn't learn to fight. They didn't have sophisticated equipment. And yet, they could conquer 45 cities. And in the archaeology, you just go and look at Google and see the archaeology of the cities of uh, Israel, the promised land in those days. They were massive cities made of huge rocks, high walls. And yet Joshua just conquered one after another. So that was the promise God gave. And if you remember what we said at the last lesson, the promised land... It's the place of rest for the Christian. You know right now you've got to come to the place of rest. You found peace. You found joy. But still you have sins in your life that you need to overcome by simple faith one by one. In the past, without, you're not born again at that time, you couldn't overcome these sins. You just didn't have the strength to do it. But after you're saved, 
any sin you want to conquer by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, you forsake the sin, you ask forgiveness, you ask the power of God to help you overcome that sin, and you will. That's the promise of God to us. So our promised land is not a geography. Our promised land is the peace and joy in our heart and the victory over sins that disturb us, sins that trouble our peace and joy. Right? So we, we parallel the promised land and the rest we Christians have when we are in the will of God and when we are overcoming one sin after another in our lives. Okay, so that's a promise given to us. And Joshua did it, conquered 31 cities. How many sins of yours? Fortified sins, hard to overcome. You almost feel you can't overcome. How many of those have you fought? Have you come and believe that by the grace of God, through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, you can overcome those sins? You're given the power already. Will you claim it? Joshua was given the power to conquer. He claimed it. Right? But he didn't finish the job. He got old, it says, and yet there was much land, yet many cities yet not conquered. Right? So that was the introduction. So we look back a little bit. Promising start. God fulfilled his promises. Now, we come to the book of Judges, what do we see? We see a lot of case studies of people. Right? It's an endless book of wonderful case studies. And you could learn the life of Gideon, the life of Deborah, all these people. You could study their lives, Samson, but we're not going to do that because this is an overview to see the connection, to see the beauty of the whole book. So as we look at this as a survey, let me encourage you, listen to it. Listen to the audio Bible. I know it's a struggle for many of you because you are so used to reading, obviously guilty that you are not reading the Word of God. But this is not meant to be an in-depth study. This is meant for you to be on a helicopter surveying the land, surveying the whole landscape of this beautiful Bible. Right? So I would suggest if you listen to it within two hours of audio Bible, I did it this morning, you can go through these 22 uh, chapters of, uh, 21 chapters of the book of Judges. Okay, so let me just say that this is a case study, but we will just skip over the case studies. And they are basically the case studies of 12 judges. Now the word Judges sounds like you go to a court, very distinguished person there, judging a case, you know, high court judge. We, but that's not this is not what it means. They are basically what you and I would call troubleshooters. Whenever Israel pleaded to God for help, God sent troubleshooters. Right? They were they fixed the problem. You could also say, in another sense, they were tribal chiefs or regional chieftains, okay? So in other words, they were sent by God to solve a problem. Now, you will see that there are 12 
judges in this book. Number 12 is quite interesting. Normally in the Bible, when it comes to governing, I think the number 12 signifies governing, like the 12 patriarchs, fathers, right? Jacob's 12 sons became the 12 tribes. New Testament, we have the 12 apostles. Here we have the 12 judges. Okay, so it's kind of, but of the 12 judges, six of them have a story written about them. The other six, we call the minor judges. So we can divide them to the major judges, the six with a story, and the six with just a short mention. We can call them minor judges. All right, so basically when we're going to study the, the case study, we're going to see the six major judges. Very swift case study of it. Now, they were not national leaders in the sense that, wow, everybody in Israel knew them. They were more regional. For example, Gideon basically helped the northern part of Israel. Samson basically helped the southern part where the Philistines were. So actually, in a sense, they did not impact the whole country. They impacted a part of the country. Okay, so that's one part. Secondly, some of their uh, ministry sort of overlapped a little bit each other because if they solved the problem in the south, maybe the north had a problem. Somebody else came to the north and solved that problem in the north. So there's kind of an overlap in time. So if you add the number of years, you get 300, maybe I, I didn't do it, but it's 300 over years if you add all the time. But actually, it's probably about 200 years some overlap because some were working here and some were working in a different part of um, of Israel, the promised land, okay? So that's the word judges. This book's probably written, people believe it's written by Samuel. Samuel wrote this book. Now, if you look at this book, it's very well summarized in chapter two. I would suggest you read chapter two and the rest you can actually listen. In chapter two, it tells you the summary of the entire book of Judges. It tells you there are cycles that these Israelites went through. Basically, the cycle was like this. They fell into sin. The commonest sin was idolatry. They worshipped a very seductive god called Baal, the god of the most popular god of the Canaanites. B-A-A-L, Baal. Actually, we always say Baal, but if you pronounce that, that's totally the wrong pronunciation. It's two sounds, Baal, right? Baal. They worship Baal. Baal is actually named after several kinds of gods. It's not very clear uh, definition, but basically it's a god, the fertility god. God of the weather and fertility of the soil. And so it was often related to sexual immorality. It was often related to fornication, to prostitution in, in the temples. It is a very awful uh, God to have. But they often fell. The children of Israel often fell into worshipping Baal simply because it's a seductive God. I mean, a God that allows you to have your cake and eat it. You know what I mean? You can have worship God and have sex at the same time. You know, it's like if carnal men just would go for that. OK, 
Okay, so they fell into sin, number one. Usually idolatry with Baal. Then when they really fell in love with Baal, God would send an oppressor. Some Philistine or some Moabite, and they would come and attack the land. So oppression is the second part of the cycle. Then when they are so oppressed until they can't take it anymore, they repent. They go to God, please God, I'm sorry, help us. I'm not sure they knew that they had sinned, but they asked for help. And then God would send a judge, a troubleshooter. And then the troubleshooter would overcome the oppressor and they would have peace for a period of time. Then after a while, they fell back again into sin. So you see the five steps, huh? Sin, oppression, crying out to God, deliverance, peace. And then start again, sin again, cycle after cycle. So chapter two gives you this summary of the basically the entire book of Judges. They just went into this time and time again. Now the judges, who were these people? Were these great men? No, most of them were very flawed personalities, quite terrible personalities. I mean, classic case is Samson, you know, Samson's like, ah, you know, he's promiscuous, he's violent, he's arrogant, he's everything unreliable and yet God used these men. How did God use them? Every time a deliverer was raised up, a judge was raised up, God gave them the Spirit of God. They were anointed with the Spirit. Not indwelling, anointed. You see, for us, when we receive Jesus, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? No, you not, you not have to, you are the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwells in you. But for them, when the God God wanted to use a deliverer, a judge, then he would give the Holy Spirit to the judge temporarily. Okay? So Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was not something that they had as a norm. In fact, only these few judges had the power of the Holy Spirit out of millions of them, okay? Secondly, even when they had the Holy Spirit, it was a temporary anointing, empowering of the Holy Spirit. Now, the fact that God used fraud men, you kind of like trouble, right? Why does God allow use these fraud men? Because that was all he had. Everybody, they were so corrupt. And even God, I think, if we want to be arrogant, you can look, why does God use them? You know, but I could ask myself the same question. Why does God use me to serve him? I'm a flawed man too, right? So the mercy of God, he still uses flawed men. But the fact is that though he empowers someone like Samson, it doesn't mean he endorses what Samson does. It's two different things. Just because some people have the power of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean everything they do is blessed by God or are allowed by are not allowed but 
are endorsed by God. No. Alright? In spite of our failures, God empowers us. Okay? So, please don't get confused. Huh? How come they got the power of God and their lives are like that? Okay? Look at ourselves and we can, we, we got the answer. Right? So, basically, this is what happened. Cycle after cycle going down, spiraling downwards, and ultimately to a total failure. Okay, so I hope you see the picture. They did not chase out all the Canaanites from them. They were supposed to. God said, remove them at evil cleansing. If you leave them, they will trouble you. They will seduce you with their sexy religions, right? And you will fall. You will marry the women who are highly immoral, much more seductive than your, your, your Israelite women. Get rid of them. Kill them. Wow, wow, wow. No, 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 no. God had a reason for this. But they didn't. They left some pockets, some towns, some cities where the Canaanites continued to live. And because they continued to live, what happens? They seduced them. They married with them. And then they fell into the seductive, tempting religions around them. So they were first surrounded by this Canaanite culture. And by the time the story ends, they were exactly like the Canaanites. The spiral had gone right down. And now they were, you can't tell the Israelite from the Canaanites. That behavior, as you see towards the end of the book of Judges, all the sins, immoral they were, Injustice, killing people for no good reason, you will see later. Idolatrous, right? So, exactly as the Canaanites, they became. And that's why God told them, please remove them. Okay, so what lessons can we learn from this book, from the big picture? Number one, the importance of leaders. You need good leaders. When Joshua was still around, they were okay. When the judge was still around, they were okay. And then, after the judge went, they went down. Leadership is so important. Spiritual leadership is so important. You remember the book of, I think it was Numbers, when at the end of it all, they were to give out the land, all right? to the Israelites, and they were told 48, the Levites were to be given 48 cities. They were not in one chunk. Every tribe had a chunk of land, so to speak. But the Levites were asked to be scattered throughout in 48 cities. What's the purpose? So that the Levites would be their spiritual leaders. But we don't hear a word about the Levites in the book of Judges. They actually don't even appear until the end of the book and they appear not for good reasons but for the worst reasons. So in other words, their spiritual leadership didn't exist. God had actually made a plan that they would be scattered everywhere and they would sort of help the tribes not to fall into the sins that they fell into, but they didn't do their job. And that is the lesson we have to learn, right? Leaders, spiritual leaders today are not doing their job. They keep quiet. 
They do the nice things, the, uh, uh, the churchy things, but they don't do the hard necessary things. Preaching is always about lifting up, you know, motivating, encouraging, comforting. What about the warnings? Okay, there's always, you see in the Bible, it's always a balance between God's judgment and God's mercy. And if we don't understand, that's why we see in the Old Testament for a lot of, do this, if you don't, kill them. Wow, you see, oh, whoa, whoa, this is not even Christian. It's the same God. It's the same God. And the hard part of our faith, Christianity, is not that because we choose the books we like, the nice books, the comforting psalms that we like. We don't, we don't like these kind of stories. You know, in, in Judges, if you listen to the Sunday school version of Judges, right, it's so sanitized, right, that, you know, if actually you look at this version of it, it's terrible. So much blood, it's violent, right? But the Sunday school version, you'll, you'll probably hear two or three stories only in Sunday school. Gideon, you know, the hero hero. Samson, the, the Dumbo Dumbo, but you know, he's this strong guy. But all the bloody scenes about, you know, conquering one city of another, killing all the animals, killing all the humans, not a word. Oh man, that's, that's not Christian, really? I thought it's the same God who hates evil. And when we see evil, that's how we must react, right? But no, today's Christianity is totally different. Silent warnings don't come out. Nice words come out. Okay, so leadership is important. Second lesson we can learn from Judges is the second generation did not know God, did not see the great works, the crossing of the, of the Jordan River, right? All the amazing things that God, the fall of Jericho, all forgotten. They have no personal experience with God. And so they fell away slowly. Now, second generation Christians, same thing. Often, first generation Christians have a personal experience with God, excited about their faith. They've seen how God had changed their life from a super messed up life, messed up marriage, and God turned it. But the second generation never experienced that. They grew up, everything was all for them. And to them, God was not personal. They never experienced it. And then they fall away quickly. So another lesson, the second generation, the third, started to fall away. But when Joshua was there, they were there. Third lesson I think we have to learn is that when you make an alliance, right, in the case of the uh, Israelites, they got married to the woman of Canaan. They're not supposed to. There weren't supposed to be women left to get married to, but they were there. They were seductive, and they married them. And when a person from a godly stock marries a person from an ungodly stock, what do you think usually happens? Does the godly stock help the ungodly stock, or does the ungodly stock drag down the godly stock? Generally speaking, it's easier to fall into sin than to rise up to righteousness. Right? It's like gravity. Physically, it's easier to fall down than to jump up, all right? So the same it is spiritually. When an unsafe, a saved person marries an unsaved person, what do you think the influence generally will be? Generally, the unsaved person will drag down the saved person. Exceptions, the other way around. 
Okay? So, third, a fourth lesson we can learn from this about idolatry. How idolatry is so seductive. We want to see something. All the time they want to they build something. Someone like Gideon built an effort. I don't think he meant that it uh, uh, was to drag people into idolatry. But you know what happened? When he built that ephod, everybody went to worship it. You see, what we can see, we tend to focus our eyes on it and forget the God behind it, the God who can't be seen. i give you an example. When we have a job, we think our job is the one that provides our needs. We forget, right? We see the job. Well, if I lose this job, I'm a dead duck. We don't say, wow, if I lose relationship with God and I'm in trouble. No, it's a job because it's visible. It could even be health food. Wow, this will keep me healthy. This will protect my life. You can see it every morning and put a pill in your mouth. You, you, you look at that like a little health God. You forgot. It's the God who blesses these pills, who makes you healthy, right? So idolatry is something very seductive to us. Humans, be very careful that we keep putting our faith in the visible things around us. Okay, so these are some lessons we can learn from Judges. Now, structure of this book, structure is very simple. Chapter 1 and 2 set the stage, tell us the summary. Then the whole hunk of it in the middle, chapters say 3 to 16 is about the lives of these judges and watching them go down the spiral slowly. And then the last few chapters, 17 to 21, shows how they already become like the Canaanites. So it begins with chapter 1 and 2, compromise. Neither did they remove such and such a city. Neither did they, neither did they they just left them there, compromise. They were supposed to remove those people from the cities, remove all the temptations from them. So compromise. And then chapters 3 to 16 speaks of their conduct, how they slowly behave more and more like the Canaanites. We'll study that in the next part of this uh, study on judges. And lastly, it ends up, chapter 17 to 21, total corruption, exactly like the Canaanites. So I hope this gives you a good overview of the book of Judges. We continue on our study overview of the book of Judges by looking at the lives of the major Judges, and we'll see the downward spiral of them. In the first part of chapter 3, there's a judge called Othniel, not terribly well known, and he was raised up to overcome the oppression by the Mesopotamian king. Now, not much is said of his life, but obviously it appears that he did a good job, and we would write to him as a pretty good judge. Then the second part of chapter 3, we have another interesting character called Ehud. 
Ehud was raised up when Israel went through terrible oppression from the king of Moab. Now they attacked the children of Israel so much, they couldn't bear it anymore. So Ehud pretended to go up to bring the tribute of the taxes to the king. And he was a left-hander. This is just a little side story. So he strapped his, his uh, sword on, the, uh, on his right thigh. So when, as a left hand, he put it on the right thigh. Normally, you won't be threatened when a guy's left hand is moving because most people are right-handers, you know. So the king saw Ehud putting his left hand, maybe he was taking uh, money out of Because if you are normally with a sword, you take your right hand, but he didn't. So he was left-handed and then he took his sword out and the king was caught unawares, he stabbed the king, right? So this guy Ehud delivered Israel from the Moabites. Okay, pretty good judge, no bad things about him. Then the next one, Deborah, we all know about Deborah. She was like a heroine, she was called a prophetess. And she delivered Israel with a general, okay? Now, the in interesting thing about Deborah is that she wrote a very long song. <laughs> okay, almost the whole, I think it's a whole chapter in uh, Judges. She was called a prophetess. Interestingly enough, the prophetess is quite a common uh, title in the, among the Israelites, women who could bring forth truth, to bring forth truth, right? To tell truth, not to foretell, not to tell about the, the future. She told about what happened, but she put it in a nice way. She put it in song. The other one we remember quite clearly was Miriam, right? Sister of Moses, when they crossed the Red Sea, she wrote a beautiful song about the victory over the Egyptian army. And as for Deborah, she wrote about a victory over their enemies. Okay, so they taught by song and it's a beautiful way to teach truth. I was in the Middle East last year and I realized that a lot of their doctrines are learned by song. You know, it was like, oh, I didn't realize for us doctrines is like very scholarly, you know, we actually take notes and all, but they knew a lot of doctrines. This, this person I was talking to knew a lot about the Bible. I said, do you know this? I mean, did you study this? No, no, we learned this as a child in, in songs. So I went and I heard that a, a children's Sunday school going on in this church in the Middle East. And why? They were singing songs all the time, right? And the kids were learning. So one way to bring forth truth, uh, to tell truth is through song. And somehow Deborah could write a beautiful song, Miriam could write a beautiful song. So sometimes you always think studying the Bible is, you know, brain power and all that. But simple thing like hearing the word, singing it out, hearing a song, we can learn a lot of truth. Now, the next judge is Gideon. Now Gideon, you see this. The first three were pretty good. Then Gideon, of course, we know his story, how, you know, he lacked faith and all that, but God used him in spite of his lack of faith. His father was a great worshiper of Baal, you know, and then how Gideon got 
used him with just 300 men to conquer a vast army. And Gideon did a great job. We know the story, no need to tell. Every Sunday school kid knows this story. But what he did after his victory was he made an ephod, it says. In Genesis 6 to 9, the life of Gideon, he ended up by making an ephod. What is an ephod? An ephod is part of the robes of the high priest. Very elaborate, uh, embroidered robe of the high priest. And I think he meant it as a kind of something good, commemorating the victory. But it ended up that this ephod became a huge idol to the Israelites. Something they could see. And they would go there and worship the ephod. I'm afraid that this happens very commonly today. We make idols of things we can see. Some people, is their pastor. Wow, he's like, everything the pastor says is okay. It's not, the Bible is not their final authority. The pastor is their final authorities. For some, it's their denomination. You can see it, strong, big, big you know, some is their church building, you know. Something that's harmless, it's not wrong to have a good building, it's not wrong to have a good pastor, it's not wrong to have a strong organization, but we can, because it's visible, we look up to that. That's our strength. Our hope is in our pastor, our hope is in our denomination, our hope is in our you know, the strong building, the strong finances we have, okay? So Gideon probably didn't realize how this in future generations would really destroy the faith of the, the Israelites. Instead of seeing the unseen God, they saw the ephod, okay? So Gideon starts this so-called downward trend. Then we have Jephthah, the next guy. Jephthah is more like a, a gangster. He's like a mafia chief, <laughs> all right? Tough guy. But he was an amazing military guy. He won amazing victories. But what did he do? He vowed to give a human sacrifice if he won. And in the end, he had to offer up his only child, his only a daughter. You see, his mind now had become so immersed in the Canaanite idea of child sacrifice, human sacrifice. They wanted anything from God they offered a human sacrifice. And he offered them. Except it was his daughter he had to give up. So it reached a stage now, the judges had no idea of the character of their God. Who is Jehovah God? Is he like Baal? Wanting a sacrifice? They had no idea. He had no idea already. See the downward spiral. They already bit of idolatry, and then now human sacrifice. And then we come to the last of the judges, woe, Samson. Every 
kid knows your story, but not the sex and violence part, right? That's sanitized in Sunday school. But he was a super promiscuous guy. You know, I told you the, the three sins of, of uh, the Canaanites, right? Immorality was number one, okay? Injustice and idolatry. And Samson was just as immoral as the Canaanites. For him, he was always looking for women, right? And then he's, he's violent, injustice, using his strength, just doing whatever he wants. And then arrogant. And we know the story. I don't need to tell you the Samson story. You heard it many, many times. But God still used him. In fact, in the last five minutes of his life, he probably did more than the rest of his life. Huh? And how he brought down the, the, the leaders, probably all the ones up on the balcony of this, this, this big building came collapsing. 3,000 Philistines died. They're probably the elite, the, the, the top class, the, the rulers of the Philistines. He killed them all. Then, you see, so we see this six judges slowly going down. A bit of idolatry from Gideon. Jephthah thinks human sacrifice will please God. Whoa. And then Samson behaves just like a Canaanite. It's the best that Israel had at that time. After you get immersed with such people, after a while, the filthiness becomes normal. Then you thought that's the end of the story. No, no, Samson's just a... The, the introduction, chapter 17 and 18, right? We see another uh, deterioration. Okay? It tells of a person called Micah. He builds an idol in his house with money he stole from his mother. So he builds an idol and then he finds a Levite comes by. This is the first time the Levite pops up, you know, the whole story. There's no mention about the Levites. They just went to sleep. You know, they, they, they just earned their, their keep. They, they were career Levites. They were, they got all the, all the benefits of being a Levite without the, without the doing the job. So this Levite comes by and then he's tempted by Micah to be a priest because Micah promised to give him 10 shekels of silver a year and a nice set of clothing. So he's a career Levite. It's like a lot of people today making money from religion. Then the tribe of Dan had no land yet. Such a long time, like two, three hundred years after Joshua goes in, they still don't have land. They hadn't conquered. You see that the Israelites basically conquered the hills, the hills. The lowlands was still inhabited by the Canaanites. Reason? The human reason was the Canaanites were a more sophisticated culture. They had chariots, they had spear throwers from chariots, and on the plains, chariots could function much better. Israelites, up to today, are very good in ambushes and speed war, and so they could take the hills because there were no uh, chariots on the hill, so they took the hill land, the lowlands, they didn't. So Dan never really got much land, the tribe of Dan. And so at this point of history, they decided, the 
then said, we need to look for more land. We don't have land. So they sent a survey party to look for land. And they found this place called Laish, L-A-I-S-H, which was full of beautiful land and few people. Now the people of Laish, as far as I can see, it says they were Sidonians in the Bible. Sidonians were not part of the tribe, the seven nations of Canaan that were supposed to be destroyed. So technically the Danites, the Dan, people from Dan, should not go and take that land because they were not Canaanites. You're not supposed to destroy them. But when they saw the land, these people of Dan, they said, this land is good. Let's kill these people. Then we can get their land. And nobody would help them because they are secluded. And so they sent an advance party and they passed by the house of Micah and they saw this Levite and they asked this Levite, what are you doing here? He said, oh, I'm a priest of this house. They give me money so I become the priest in this house. And the Danite said, come on. Why do you be a priest for one family? Be a priest for the Danites. Better to be a priest of a bigger group, you get more money to and more prestige. So the Levite straight away decided, why not? I mean, for him, money was the, the reason why he served God, so to speak. So he joined them. And the Bible tells us the Danites totally annihilated the people of Laish. Right? Now, was that right? I don't think so. They were not Canaanites. You're not supposed to destroy them. Why did you kill them? This is ethnic cleansing. This is not evil cleansing, right? So the Bible shows us how the tribe of Dan, remember their sins? Idolatry. They wanted this priest to bring this idol from Micah's house. Now they say, we have an idol, we have a priest, we'll have a victory. So they have idolatry and injustice, killing these innocent people living peaceably by themselves in the hills of the city of Laish. Now the tribe of Dan today is eradicated from the record. If you look at the book of Revelation, the names of the tribes of Israel, Dan is not there. Just as Judah is not there after 12 apostles of the 12 tribes, Dan is now, I hope you begin to see now the violence, the idolatry, nothing about praying to God. Give me a Levite, give me an idol, and we will win the war. Okay? And then the last two chapters, wow, this is, if you read it, you cannot even, you won't even make a movie out of it because it won't pass the census, censor board. All right? It's like Sodom all over again. It tells in chapter 19 to 21, a Levite goes out to find his concubine. Finally, he and the concubine go to a city called Gibeah. And when they go to the city of Gibeah, the man insists on having sex with the Levite. They shout and tell the, the, the owner of the house, bring up the Levite. We want to have sex with him. Well, you don't teach this in Sunday school, right? Men screaming out for another foreigner who came by to have sex with him and then the owner of the house said no 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 don't do that 
And finally, they take the concubine of the Levite and they rape her to death. And the next morning, she's found dead at the door of the, of the house. And the Levite takes her body, takes the body of his concubine and brings him to his place and cuts the body up into 12 pieces. I mean, how do you teach that in Sunday school? I mean, this is like sodomy. This is like you rape a girl to death. I mean, you heard of rape, gang rape, but to death. And then this guy takes the body of his concubine and chops her up into 12 pieces. I mean, it's like, okay, okay. Now, uh, this is kind of hard to, to even picture. And he sends the parts, the 12 parts to the 12 tribes of Israel and says, Somebody did this, raped my, my concubine. And then the 12 tribes in anger came up and said, this cannot happen. This is too much. This is too much. Even conscience cannot accept you can rape somebody to death. And then, you know, so the Israelites said, go to war against the tribe of Benjamin. Because this sin was committed in the city of Benjamin. It's a long story, but anyway, you can listen to you get the story. And so the first civil war takes place. Israelite now almost totally annihilates the tribe of Benjamin. Almost totally, almost disappears. Left a handful of people. And that's why we realize that when we say 10 lost tribes, remember that 10 lost tribes of Israel, Assyrians took 10, there should be two left, right? Should be two. But the two left are called Jews because it's Judah and Benjamin. But Benjamin is so tiny that it almost doesn't feature at all. So the two tribes are called Jews today, not Jubens, Judah and Benjamin. No, because Jude Benjamin became such a tiny tribe. The story is here. Okay, so I hope you begin to see how it. They lived among people who took sex as normal, sodomy as normal, taking advantage of weak people and foreigners coming by. You could rape a man because he's from another town. All this is like normal in the land of Canaan. And now it became normal for the Israelites. So I hope you understand when you talk about ethnic cleansing. I don't. You see the picture of Sodom, then later you say, oh, but Sodom's gone. No, 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 no. You see the Benjamites in Gibeah behaving mirror image of the Canaanites. Because the history is not about the Canaanites. You don't see much about the Canaanites. This Bible is a history of the Israelites. But when you see Israelites behaving that way, it was just a mirror image of the Canaanites. Okay? So, we see now Israel had come one big circle. They were supposed to chase out the Canaanites and cleanse the land of the filthiness of idolatry, immorality, and injustice. They now have become like the Canaanites. So how is God going to deliver them? You can't deliver them. He has to deliver them from themselves. Right? 
And so the next book is very interesting. Ruth. Oh, we see this very sad. The next book is Ruth. You see, what's Ruth going to do with judges? If you look at the life of Ruth, she's a Moabitess. Next, next lesson you'll learn, maybe tomorrow. And you know what? She's an ancestor of David, who is an ancestor of Jesus Christ. Who is going to deliver them? Who is going to deliver the Israelites from themselves? Now you can't deliver them how? You could deliver them from Egypt. Now what do you deliver them from? Themselves. How can you do it? Except through a Messiah and a changed heart. I hope you see the why after the book of Judges comes this story almost like what is it linked up? In fact, in the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, the two books are one book. Judges and Ruth is actually one book. Huh? Kind of funny, right? After this gory, gory detail comes about. Naomi and Ruth and Harvest. It's like, oh, after these bloody scenes. But that's what the Bible is. One beautiful book. Now, the Judges ends with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. No king. But true Ruth, there will be a king who will deliver us from ourselves. So as you look at this book of Judges, what do you see about the character of God? I see patience. Amazing patience. How can this God tolerate this people who carry his name doing all this nonsense for like 300 years. And God has to work with them. Every time they cry out to God, in mercy, he sends a deliverer. And even the deliverer is kind of like, ah, why do I have to use this guy? Samson. But you know, the mercy of God. And yet you also see the judgment of God. Wow, the balance. That's the purpose of studying this book. Know your God. He hates sin, but He loves us. He will deal strongly with sin, but He will deal patiently with us. What a God. And so we see the gospel thread. We see the character of God. Studying Judges is not about studying so much the character of Samson. Nothing wrong. I mean, you can study and you learn you know, the case studies, how you can be better than St. Gideon and don't make the mistakes. There's nothing wrong with that. But the focus is to see God, see the beauty of this book of Judges. So the next book is Ruth, quite a change, but then still the one connected, beautiful book, God 